Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything of the podcast. I am your host, Adam Ruins Everything. Nope, I'm your host, Adam Conover. I'm sorry. What a mistake. Well, let's leave it in because I thought it was charming. Uh, this podcast is based off of the TV show of the very same name. And that show, to remind you, is back. You can find new episodes of Adam Ruins Everything every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. And you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. But hey, guys, you're not watching a TV show, right? now you're listening to a podcast. What do we do on that podcast? Well, on this show, I talk to researchers, academics, scholars, experts, activists from people all across the world of human knowledge about the work they do and why it is so fascinating. We go deep, deep, deep on their topics and we bring them straight to you. Today's guest is Natasha Dow Shul. Natasha was on Adam Ruins Vacations where she explained how casinos and slot machines are designed to make players addicted to gambling and to keep them that way. This topic is so shocking because we're used to this conversation about tobacco or about drugs. We very rarely talk about how psychological phenomena can be about how things that we interact with can be designed to be addictive in exactly the same way. And Natasha is going to break down exactly how and why. She's a cultural anthropologist and associate professor in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University, otherwise known as NYU. And she's also the author of a book on this topic called Addiction by Design, Machine Gambling in Las Vegas. I am so excited to have Natasha join us today from New York. Let's get to the interview. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So you've extensively studied slot machines and uh, the fact that they can actually be addictive. I think that's a somewhat foreign concept to most people because we, we I think most people have the idea, okay, these things are a little pernicious. They, oh, it's the one-armed bandit. It'll take your money. But normally when we talk about addiction, we talk about things that are physical. We talk about cigarettes or, you know, now they're starting to say, oh, even soda, maybe sugar can be addictive. There's sort of a growing, you know, cognizance of, of that might be a possibility. But slot machines are a totally, you know, there's nothing physically happening to you, right? So um, it, it, that's a little bit more unintuitive. Uh, it, but you have found that they can, in fact, be addictive. They can, in fact, be addictive. And just to, to call you out on something you just said, that there's nothing physically, uh, organically happening, that's not quite the case. Um, and addiction mm. researchers like to often look at so-called process addictions like gambling addiction or shopping or internet addiction because it gives you a really pure view of what is organically happening in your brain. Uh, when you talk about your reward center and the, the, the different neurotransmitters, et cetera. So uh, when you're sitting playing a slot machine, there's all sorts of chemicals flying around in the brain being triggered. Uh, and you can actually have withdrawal symptoms uh, if, you, if you're addicted to slot machines and then you don't play them for a while. But you are right that people have a real stumbling block in their thinking around addiction, 
uh, they, they, they can get it when you're actually inhaling a cigarette or injecting something in your veins or even eating um, sugar. But when you're choosing, seemingly choosing to sit down and uh, spend your money over and over again at a slot machine, uh, it, that, that can be a hard sell to talk about addiction. Right. And and one of the things I know is that addiction is a very difficult topic to pin down because we've talked about it on the show before. Uh, sorry. In our writer's room, we've discussed, oh, maybe we should do a segment or an episode on addiction generally and how we misunderstand what addiction is. And one of the reasons we haven't done that is because we've learned that it's it's a very difficult idea to pin down what it is, how it works, or to come up with any sort of generalized theory of addiction. Is that the case? It is the case, but here's how I like to think about it. And I think most addiction researchers would, if not all, would would agree with this. Addiction is, is always a relationship. There has to be a person, and then there has to be a substance, an object, an activity, something on the other side. It can't happen just with a bottle of alcohol. It can happen just with a person. And you've got people out there who like to say alcoholics don't come in bottles, they come in people. You could say the same about the slot machine, and lots of people do, especially the gambling industry and the designers Mm. of the machines. They like to say addicts don't come in machines, they come in people. And they like to throw a lot of money at looking at uh, personal history of trauma, uh, your genetics, your uh, neurochemistry, and they like right. to ignore the machine side of the relationship. But what I tried to do in my book is show, no, there's no way we can understand this phenomenon of addiction unless we understand it as a relationship of dynamic feedback between a person, and in this case, a slot machine. And it's quite clear that the slot machine brings a lot to that dynamic relationship. Right. And the and uh, the the gambling industry, sort of their messaging about gambling addiction. And it's, you know, when you go to Vegas, you see it everywhere now. It's it's definitely something that they are clearly trying to get ahead of and trying to uh, address. But it's all based around of it's all based around if you're a problem gambler, if you have a problem with gambling, it's sort of like if if you're this special type of person who, uh oh, you were born a problem gambler, sorry, you've you've got, you know, the the special bug in your brain that causes you to have this problem, then here's how you should deal with it. But there's less responsibility taken for the fact that it's the industry the industry has some culpability in in causing the addiction. Exactly. And this word responsibility that you mentioned is key because this word has been given a huge amount of airplay by the industry. Um, they, they have mindfully tried to get out ahead of this problem of addiction and really define what it is in the case of problem gambling. In other words, it is a problem of responsibility and you need to, as an individual, um, work on cultivating greater responsibility. Uh, rather right. than, and that completely deflects attention away from the machine side of, again, what I see as an wow. addiction relationship. So you've got these tons of money being put in, which isn't really so much money, by the way, but uh, when, when you look at the profits coming from these machines, uh, but you see the industry putting money toward these responsibility campaigns, which essentially are going around saying to people, um, listen, 
if you might have a problem, these are the ways in which you need to be more responsible, gamble more responsibly. They even go so far sometimes as putting uh, things called responsible gambling management devices on slot machines, hmm. which are like self-banking modules where you can go in and keep track of your own gambling, your spending. Uh, so it really puts the whole burden of managing this problem uh, off of the partial creators of this problem, the purveyors of gambling, right. and onto the individuals who are sitting there. Uh, this responsible gambling campaign that you see happening in casinos and in the industry is really a very concerted, mindful public relations campaign to define the problem of addiction as a problem of gambler irresponsibility rather than one that the industry might be partially culpable in. Right. This is so funny because this is one of the biggest sort of meta issues we've come back to on Adam Ruins Everything over and over again, which is that ever since, you know, companies first started being cracked down on um, for issues like this, they sort of developed this uh, additional strategy where now they address the they say, OK, we're going to address the problem before anybody else. Hey, we're going to get way out in front of it. But then they shift the burden of responsibility onto the individual every time rather than on the people who create the systems that the individuals engage with. So our biggest example of that was we had an episode called Adam Ruins Going Green where we talked about how when the consumer packaging industry, the, the people making cans and bottles, shifted from a reusable bottle-based industry to a disposable industry, disposable cans and bottles that we have today, and it started creating litter, and litter became a matter of public outcry. Why is there so much litter? They created the organization Keep America Beautiful in order to create an anti-littering campaign. And the thing about the campaign was that it was based on, hey, you, don't throw your bottle away. The problem is the litterers, not the people making the litter. Um, and this, right. the resonance there is is so striking to me that, like, okay, we've got a a gambling addiction addiction problem, but the problem isn't the people making the instruments of gambling. It's the it's the addicts. So they need to be more careful. They need to, uh, uh, you know, gamble responsibly per se. Right, and it's a subtle framing because you know who who can be against responsibility? Who can be against a recycling campaign? It's kind of the same problem. Like, of course, we should all be more responsible. But when that's all that we talk about, we miss a big part of the picture. So let's talk about, before we get into the features of slot machines that cause them to be addictive, I just want to know what behaviors do we see in gambling addicts that let you know, okay, this is an addiction that is on par with, you know, any of the more, quote, traditional forms of addiction, you know, drug or substance addictions that we've talked about. How, how do you know that this is an addi a true addiction? Well, one way is you could go to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and um, you could sort of track the evolution of the problem gambling category or pathological gambling over the past mm. couple of years. And recently, in the latest edition, it has actually moved into the addiction category. And it looks a lot like the, the criteria. Uh, it looks a lot like the criteria for alcoholism or uh, narcotics use. You spend a lot of time thinking about it when you're not doing it. Your whole existence from morning till night sometimes is geared around kind of getting back into a situation where you can be engaging with, uh, in this case, the slot machine. Um, other aspects of your life suffer, your relationships. There's high rates of divorce, et cetera. Some people don't know that 
uh, problem gambling and gambling addiction, it's the, the rate of suicide is 20%, which is up there wow. with schizophrenia and some of the other disorders. Among, among gambling addicts or problem gamblers, the suicide rate is 20%? It can be as high as 20%, yeah. Okay, wow. That's that that is that is so striking. Um, so how do these machines, in your view, you know, I mean, your book is called Addiction by Design. Um, what are the features of these designs that uh, lead to addiction? So there's many aspects of design. And the one I start with in my book um, is not directly related to the machine, um, although I found in my research that it was all ultimately about the machine. And that was the architecture and interior design of casinos. So mm. when I would uh, actually, I wasn't in, even invo- interested in slot machines. wasn't thinking about them when I started this project many years ago. I was looking at the the so-called Disneyification of Las Vegas, and you saw this building boom in the 1990s. And I thought, as an anthropologist, it would be interesting to go and interview a lot of the designers and architects who were putting up those uh, casino spaces and ask them what the, what the logic was to that design. And interestingly, uh, most of them ended up by telling me, like, oh, well, I curve the carpet this way because it leads into the slot machine area, which is our greatest revenue driver. And, oh, I, we put the mirrors here so it reflects people back to this area. And we lower the ceilings to this height to give people a protective cocoon where they can kind of get in their own private playing world. Uh, oh. So everything, including sound decibels and how those were calibrated, uh, visuals, pixelation of screens, lighting. It was all really around how to get people in front of these devices and keep them there as long as possible because these devices really are the golden geese of the industry in terms of revenue. So you noticed you were just looking into the architecture and you found that it kept it kept funneling back to the slot machines. Absolutely. And then I started looking at that more. I said, huh, well, let, let me go down that road a little bit more and look at the actual physical machines. And I started going to the Global Gaming Expo, which happens every year in Las Vegas in the giant expo center. And you'll see booths, a, a whole wing of the expo center, for instance, is dedicated toward chairs, the, the seats that go in front <laughs> of machines. And the brochures go on and on about our chairs will increase what's called time on device. And they talk about time on device so much in the gambling industry that they shorthand it as TOD. And I was asking myself, you know, who is this mysterious guy, Todd? (laughs) But no, it's time on device. That's the the moneymaker. And so you have seats that will curve so that they don't cut off your circulation, which is thought to be very important, especially for elderly gamblers. And the height of the console and where you rest your hand is a certain height. It's very much sort of like like 19th century factory management where you design the whole assembly line uh, so that people can produce more and becoming with their bodies becoming less fatigued. But in the case of gambling, you're talking about an entertainment product that people are consuming rather uh, than something that they're producing. But it's really quite striking, the similarities. Wow. And so the purpose is to maximize this time on device. Is that across, like, it's not just chairs, though. It's the machine itself, I imagine. Right. So there's chairs, and then you get to the actual machine, and there you see 
you know, the, the consoles are curved and the screens are set back at a certain distance to create um, an anti-noise cone so that you won't hear sound deflecting uh, across the room at you, which, again, it's all about reducing fatigue and keeping you there longer. Um, and the screens themselves are calibrated uh, with the right pixelation and um, sound events also to increase time on device. One company told me uh, that they have... People don't realize this, but a, a huge a team of 300 people typically is involved in making any one machine and everything from sound engineers to mathematicians. And the sound engineers at this one company decided they'd make all the 400 different sound events happen in the key of C because this was thought to be a very balancing, harmonious, pleasant sound to the person. Um, so that that's one example of how the, the, the screens and the acoustics are fabricated. Uh, but I mentioned mathematicians before, and that's really the heart the heart of it all. You can have a machine with the most comfortable seat and the most pleasing sounds and visuals. Uh, and you're not gonna you're not gonna stay at that machine if the math isn't right. And when I say mm. math, what I'm talking about is what, you know, a behaviorist scientist like B.F. Skinner who worked with the the pigeons um, in his so called Skinner boxes mm. He would call it a reinforcement schedule. The casino industry calls it a reward schedule. And it's really the same thing they're talking about. What is the pattern by which rewards or losses are, are dispensed? Um, so if you think about it, um, they, they discovered in the 50s in these lab experiments that pigeons will persist in an activity the most, and so will people, when they never know how much they're going to get and they never know when it's coming. Yes, uh, and this. so. That's completely the case with a slot machine. A slot machine is essentially a Skinner box. And back in the days when we didn't know what Skinner boxes were, Skinner himself would use the slot machine as a metaphor so that people could understand what a Skinner box was. Really? Of course, yeah. But he didn't. He wasn't talking about slot machines in an era when they were digitized. He was talking about you know old. A uh, one-armed bandit with three reels that was an analog device. It wasn't digitized or computerized. Mm -hmm. uh, if he had known how these machines would build on that basic formula with all of today's technology, um, the metaphor, I think, in his mind would have only been stronger. For those who don't know, can you refresh us on what a, on what a Skinner box is? So um, in, in the, the 50s and 60s, these experiments were done in laboratories with a range of different animals, rats, pigeons, etc. And there would be a kind of setup that looked a lot in, in a small box. The animal would be inside the box. And the setup looked a lot like a slot machine. There would typically oh, be a lever and some lights, green, red lights, um, different buttons that you could peck on. And there would be water and food in one corner. And then there would be this setup uh, where you could sort of peck. And sometimes you'd get some food or some pellets or some water. Sometimes you wouldn't. You never knew. And instead of just going over and eating the food that was there in the corner, if you were a pigeon, uh, you would hang out pecking endlessly um, like, an, like an addict, you know, addicted essentially to trying to figure out that puzzle. What's going to come out of the machine? When is it going to come out? There's something deeply compelling, um, not just for humans, but for animals as well, about that kind of uh, variable. It's called a variable uh, intermittent reward schedule. 
You, you, yeah. know, you, you never really know. There's a deep element of uncertainty there. And so this is what uh, Skinner figured out is what is the most addicting and compelling reinforcement schedule. And that's the schedule that you see happening um, at slot machines. It's almost like that phrase, you know, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing and expect different results. But when we do find out that a different result happens occasionally and it's a result that we want and we don't know when it's going to happen, that's like the sweet spot for us mentally. If the same thing happens every time, we're bored. <laughs> if if nothing ever happens, obviously you walk away. But if like every, you know, if there's like, oh, wait, but maybe this time I'll uh, I'll be a winner. That's what we sort of lock into. Exactly. And as I said, this that basic truism about slot machines, um, it has now been enhanced by a whole number of psychological and technological tricks that were not available in the, the, the age of Skinner boxes. Yeah, so the, so the first thing they're doing is, you said the mathematician is tuning this reward schedule to be to, to give us, I guess, the most of that intermittent reward uh, uh, lock-in sensation. But then what, what other tricks are they using? So if you think about an early three-reel one-armed uh, bandit slot machine, there was 22 stops on each reel. And so if you think about it, the odds were pretty fixed by the material analog form of that machine. It wasn't digital and computerized. It was 22 physical stops on three reels. Um, and it really limited the the flexibility of the odds that you could play with. And if you were a gambler, you could get a pretty good sense of when you were going to win, when you, when you were going to lose. And those machines were also machines where you could totally lose all your money pretty quickly, or you could double it, triple it. Now mm. let's compare that to the the main moneymaker of today's slot machine, which is called the the multi-line device. And I'll just explain that, um, hopefully in a simple way. Uh, instead of one line across of symbols that you're trying to get, right, three cherries in a row on the pay line, there are now up to sometimes 100 or 200 pay lines. There are many rows. It's like a giant grid on a video screen. And it's not only rows that you're lining up, uh, it's also zigzags and diagonals. And sometimes you don't even know why things are flashing and lining up and that you're winning on them. It's become a complete chaos of symbols. Uh, but what this means is you can, for the first time in history, apportion your bet. You can bet 100 pennies, not on one line. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. You bet 100 pennies on 100 different lines. And it adds this strange element of certainty to what is essentially mm -hmm. uncertainty of, of the gambling exchange. You're sort of diversifying your portfolio because, you know, if I bet 100 on pennies on 100 different lines, I'm going to be I'm going to be winning back on some of them. Right. And so it creates more of a sense of flow instead of losing everything, winning something, which can be very jarring. Right. And you picture people standing up at slot machines in a, in a sort of stance of suspense. Today, people are lounging back with kind of glazed over eyes in these ergonomic chairs, spending a huge amount of time on these multi-line machines and almost every hand. They're getting the same reinforcement. Ding, 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 ding. You won on three lines. Ding, 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 ding. You won on 20 lines, slowly chipping away at their money while they don't really notice it. Right. Uh, this is called false wins because if you put in 100 and you win back 20, 
that's a loss. You've lost 80 coins. But it feels the same to your brain and to your whole system, your whole perceptual system. It feels the same as a win. Lights flash, ding, 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 ding. And you kind of relax into the flow of this machine. One, one mathematician told me, he said, um, think about it like this. As a mathematician, I want to design a game algorithm, a reinforcement schedule uh, that you can recline on like a comfortable couch. That's amazing. And it contrasts with what we normally think of as the motivation for gambling. Like in our sort of cultural imagination of gambling is it's all about hope that one day I will be a rich billionaire, you know, and I can do, you know, that's the classic, uh, you know, okay, maybe I'll win the lottery um, and then, you know, my life will change. That in our head is what gambling is about. Um, But this is a lot more like uh, like a one dollar scratcher as opposed to the to the mega millions. It's like uh, the you know, if you buy 100 scratchers, you'll win ninety nine dollars. And that's why people buy them every single day, you know, is is for that fun little you know, it's just a little it's it's a little bit, you know, Um, uh, it's like the routine of it. People buy, you know, buy those. uh, I I used to work at a gas station and the same people would come in and buy twenty dollars of scratch off tickets every single day. Um, uh, not and the most you could win was five hundred dollars. They were doing it because they were sort of in this groove. Um, and scratch off tickets is a great example. It's sort of like the lottery example of a multi line slot machine, because huh. you're not playing like one game a week and putting all your eggs in one basket. You've got like the twenty rows. It's almost set up kind of like these these slot machines. You're again, you're sort of distributing and apportioning your bets in this way where you'll get a little back as as you're steadily losing. And you are also so right that uh, we, we have this idea, and I, it really is a myth, that gambling addiction is the real problem there is that people think they're going to win and they don't understand probability. And that was something I took a few years into my research to understand, that people who are really addicted to these machines, by and large, are under no illusion that they're going to win. They understand very well that what they're addicted to is the flow of it, the escape of it, and they even have a word for it, which is the zone. Uh, And I would Mm. ask people, you know, describe the zone to me. And they say, well, it's just this state where time falls away, space falls away, a sense of money value, and even a sense of the body falls away. And this is, you know, it's uh. it's not a myth that people will wear diapers and just spend 48 hours and pee <sighs> repeatedly in these adult diapers so that they can stay there longer. And what really brought it home for me was I kept hearing people say, you know, it's so weird, but when I win a jackpot, I get really frustrated and angry and irritated. And I would say, what is that about? Explain that to me. Isn't that why you're there? And they'll say, well, I think it's because it interrupted the zone. And really why I'm sitting there is to stay in the zone. And when I win a jackpot, the lights start flashing. The machine freezes up. It plays this music to me that I don't want to hear. People look over at me. Suddenly I'm back in the world where I don't want to be. Wow. And I get so irritated. So really this is about this zone, which is a psychological state of absence. It's not about winning when, you, when you're talking about addiction. So I, I and I know that these slot machines, you know, a lot of times they have that sort of um, collective jackpot that's like building up that you can win eventually or that, you know, that's a 
Uh, I've seen that before in casinos. Oh, if you play here, you know, you'll you have a chance at winning this this uh, rolling jackpot that's going up. If that's the case, you would expect those to become less popular. If if the whole point is the zone, then they would the casino would need to rely less on that on that large jackpot. Is that the case or? Well, I I bet you've seen those often in tourist casinos where people yes. are kind of flying in um, for the th- and, and they're more in the state of thrill and suspense that we associate with gambling. But if you go out to the locals casinos, people really just want to be left. Al- it's not a social thing. It's not something of suspense. Yes. It's more it's it's less like cocaine and more like morphine is how some people have described it to me. Well, I'm here talking to Professor Natasha Dowshul. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Hi there. I'm comedian and movie buff Ricky Carmona, and I'm excited to tell you about a new show I'm doing called Who Shot Ya? Join me, L.A. Weekly film critic April Wolf. I'm going to call Star Wars when it comes out the Clint Howard Project. <laughs> film reviews editor for The Wrap, Alonzo Duraldi. Everything Charlize Theron knows about killing somebody with a high-heeled shoe, she learned from single white female. Trust me. <laughs> and our dope-ass friends each week. The stunt guys were asking me, like, do you need a stunt double in here to, for, for you to skate? I'm like, no, no, I, I was on skates at three. So if you're tired of whack opinions and you're looking for a smart, funny film discussion show, check out Who Shot Your Son? That's what we do. And you can find us at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to NYU anthropology professor Natasha Dowshul. So you say on the show that the, uh, the, the casino's goal, they is to keep people in that zone, in that sort of morphine zone, what a vivid way to put it, um, as long as possible. Um, how how do they do that? Well, I've talked about so many of the, the kind of acoustic, um, atmospheric, right. uh, ergonomic kind of ways. And then there's also the um, the algorithmic. In other words, the game, the game algorithms. And... Um, that would carry over to this idea of false wins. You know, they figured out that if they design the math so that it's the kind of mathematical experience where over time you feel like you're reclining on the couch instead of sitting up, uh, you know, at risk of losing everything or winning big, you know, they figured out they can make a whole lot more money if they let people sit there longer and uh, slowly take their money. That didn't used to be the logic in the industry. They didn't ever even had chairs in front of these things. They were considered uh, something you'd play in the hallway on the way to do your real gambling at some green felt table. Um, but now it's no mistake they have chairs in front of them. So, um, you know, there, there, another way that we haven't talked about would be big data analytics. And that mm. is relatively recent uh, introduction to the, to this gambling economy. Right, that's the that's like the player's card and the and the player tracking and everything, right? Yeah, and people don't realize that 85 upwards of 85% of gamblers uh, are using uh, player cards, which are kind of like frequent flyer cards um, right. or you know, a supermarket reward card, but they're using it all the time. Um, and they're they're building up points. And another key aspect of it is they're not using heart. They're not putting coins in one at a time. They're sort of putting this money in because it essentially is money. 
and they're just forgetting about it. So money is completely dematerialized and they're playing off of this uh, off of this card. Right, they're loading up. They're loading up the card with money rather than uh, rather than going and putting quarters in the machine. In the old days, you go to the casino and you load it up with however much you feel, and then you just go sort of sit and play on that card as long as you can. Right, and when it runs out, then you've got to really make a decision to continue. So the casino and I have you know great quotes on this. They're very open about it. They want to reduce all moments of responsible decision making. And that even carries over to the carpets. There's a law, really, that you don't make a right angle on a carpet because a right angle is a stopping point where where a person who is walking needs to reflect on a decision to turn right into the gaming area or go (laughs) straight. They don't want you to do that whether you're at the machine or not. So they're curving the carpets. They're curving the algorithm so that it's a slow sort of waterfall, uh, you know, of the mathematics that feels like a couch, not a spiky, jagged kind of graph if you actually look at the the graph of this stuff. Uh, But the really hidden thing, you know, back to the big data aspects, the really hidden thing going on um, that people don't realize is their data and their behavior is being closely monitored and processed and analyzed. And that behavior um, is very, very valuable. It's really more of it, you know, they say, great, I'll play with this player card because I get bonus points. What they don't realize is what, what, are, what are they giving away to get those bonus points? They're giving away something arguably much more valuable, which is their intimate behavioral data. Casinos have really rich profiles on gamblers over time. They know your preferences. They know how fast you hit the button during certain kind of game events. They, they know what, what are called your sweet spots and your pain points. Uh, and they can then, if they see, oh, look, it's Sunday after church. We've got all these little old ladies coming in. They all like to play nickels. Uh, they then they prefer this kind of game algorithm. Let's just um, put those machines out on our floor, and we're wow. going to be able to make more money, you know, at these times. And they can do that sort of quickly and easily because it's it's all digital, right? The whole the whole thing is each one of those things is a computer screen that's going back to sort of the the HQ, and they can uh, adjust what they're doing very easily. Well, even more easily lies in the future. There's only a few casinos, um, given the, the, the 2008 kind of uh, market crash. We were seeing this trend, and then there was a pause in it, but now we're seeing it again. And it's a trend to what's called cloud-based gambling. And that would be... <laughs> oh, no. Right. And that's of, like... Of the, all the things to go in the cloud, we're already <laughs> suspicious enough of the cloud. Now gambling's in the cloud. Oh, God, this can't be good. <laughs> well, here's why... Yeah, here's why the cloud is not good for gamblers. Uh, in the past, you know, you could assume that if you walk up to a machine cabinet, that inside that cabinet lives the digital content of that machine. And it was relatively easy, but not super easy to go in there, open the cabinet, change the chip out... Um, to to sort of change the configuration of your gambling floor. You had to commit to it in advance, and then you were sort of stuck with the products that you had there. With the game content moving up to the cloud, that cabinet becomes just like this empty vessel that can receive whatever content you might wish to put there, and you can change that content in 20 seconds. Uh, And the other scary thing is um, there are still laws that prevent against this, but this, the capacity to figure out 
look, Adam is here. We know Adam. We know his unique likes. We don't even need to worry about his demographic. We just know him as an individual. Let's feed him this very particular Adam customized game um, that he's going to want to play. Right. That's that is the part that I was sort of wondering if we were getting to, um, uh, because, hey, if they know if if I've been playing for, you know, a thousand hours and they know every time Adam loses this amount, he stops playing or every time we, you know, OK, if we tweak the reward system slightly like this, then he spends an extra hour on the machine. Um, that's like a very. You know, it's it's simultaneously very rich and a very simple set of inputs that they can use in order to, you know, do trial and error. And if they're able to sort of change those odds on the fly, um, if I'm already in that zone, it's going to be really easy to tweak it to keep me there as long as possible. Just sort of like exactly. Is that something that's happening now or is that what the industry would like to do or where where is that as a reality? Okay, so here's here's where it's at. Um, you may have heard of the kind of mythic dial in the back room where gamblers would always be suspicious that some manager was kind of watching them through the eye in the sky and noticing that they were getting frustrated. So they'd like turn the dial and give them a little win and then turn right. it back. Um, that was a myth. But now, actually, the dial does exist. And the one <laughs> thing protecting us against it is the law. And the law still states that you are not allowed as a purveyor of gambling to change the odds in the middle of a session Uh, the machine has to you have to stop playing two minutes the machine needs to sit silently then start up again two minutes only then can you sort of pull this new content down from the cloud so you cannot go in and tweak stuff as the game is happening Um, here's one way that they used to get around that and here's the way they're trying to get around it now which is super creepy So the way they used to get around it was called luck ambassadors. And luck ambassadors would be sitting in the back room. And even though they weren't allowed to change the odds, they could still see how it was affecting you. And they'd say, oh, you know, Natasha, she's going to leave now. We know that historically. We know that statistically. Uh, And they would dispatch a live luck ambassador in the form of a person, a manager, over to the machine to give me like a $10 bonus to keep playing. And it didn't work very well. You know, as sinister as it sounds, people didn't want to be interrupted from the zone. They were like, you know, go away. I don't care about this $10 bonus. Just let me keep playing. You know, I don't want to go to the buffet. And it was a bad way of sweetening the pot. It wasn't very seamless and fluid. So now to get around the law, what people are doing is finding a digital way of sort of hiding an invisible little luck ambassador in the machine as you're playing in the form of what they're calling a marketing module. So they're, as you play each hand, they're shunting a tiny portion of your bet into what's called this marketing module. And they argue this marketing module is totally separate from the odds. It's separate from the game. And yet when they realize that you need the pot sweetened or you're at a pain point, they're going to trigger that marketing module to shunt the money back into the game and give you a bonus. And you are not going to see that happening. It's happening behind the scenes. For all you know, intents and purposes, you are uh, they are changing the odds. But they're trying to get around it by classifying it as a different legal entity. Oh, no, this isn't part of the slot machine math. 
this is this separate marketing thing that has a different laws applied to it. So you see the sneakiness. Yeah, but you're still getting the uh, yeah. They're still giving you the same little bonus at the same moment that they're same gonna that they're gonna know that it matters. That's gonna keep you in the seat. Yeah. It's just instead of being the little jackpot, it's a it's a uh, thanks thanks for playing from us at the marketing department or whatever. Like it's the same, but you're not gonna know the difference as the player. No, because they're not even saying thanks from the marketing department. They're doing it. They're integrating it seamlessly into your experience of the game. So from the perspective of the consumer. They are fixing, they are shift, shifting the odds during a session of play, which is against the law. So, I, you know, I'm, I've moved on to other projects since my book came out in 2012. But this one uh, innovation that's being worked on right now has kind of pulled me back in. And I want to, uh, you know, bring this to people's attention and fight against it because I find it quite insidious. Right. And you can't, and you can only imagine what they would like to do additionally, or or what conversations are happening, you know, in the you know in lobbyist offices around uh, around Nevada or around the country um, about about being able to push this. I would imagine exactly, and it's part of a whole other set of things happening. I mean, if we want to just broaden the conversation out to. Um, you know, Candy Crush and some right. cer certain kind of online video games and even website design. It's all about uh, behavior design, which is a term you hear more and more. And it's about a certain kind of behavior design, which is picking up on what's happening as you interact with something that isn't mm -hmm. like a movie which ends and you leave. It isn't like buying a pair of shoes. You make the purchase. It's over. It is a quote unquote commodity that's many, many, many little interactions that are continuous over time that are open-ended. You can just stay and keep going, right? And in the process of sitting there in that flow, that zone, whatever you want to call it, whether you're playing Candy Crush or, um, you know, on an eBay auction, uh, your preferences and what you, what you want to do as a consumer are shifting as you engage with it. So it's a very insidious kind of commodity, and there are no laws that take into account how something like that affects your system and how it might maybe reduce right. your responsibility, your capacity to be responsible. Yeah. I, I mean, this, uh, you know, what upsets me about this so much is that, you know, I mean, for folks who are listening and have listened to this podcast for a while or follow me on social media, I'm a huge video game player. I grew up with video games. It's it's, you know, in many ways, it's I think it's our, you know, the the this century's, you know, greatest new art form. You know, this is the film revolution of 100 years ago, but happening now in terms of you know, the possibilities of art that's interactive, you know, and, and uh, my favorite thing in a game is when a game designer has figured out, oh, at this part in the game, the, you know, the player is going to feel like this and I'm going to make them feel like that because this is going to happen to them, you know, or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's that it's that interactivity where you sort of feel the designer's hand guiding you to have a certain emotion and that emotion can be very revelatory. You know, that's what I love about the whole field. Um, but I've and noticed it happens in movies too, right? I yes, mean, it does. Yes, it it's does. It's part of the creative process and it can be really great, but you know, certain kind of, maybe the games you play end and the movies end. Right. And these exchanges are these tedious little repeating loops yes. that aren't necessarily 
don't have a really big emotional bandwidth. They're not necessarily creative or inspiring or moving. That You're in this sort of glazed over, dazed over zone. Yes. There's not that much that's happening that's interesting, right? And and that's what's upsetting me about it because it's like somebody who's – it's like they're using something that I love, this technique that is can be very beautiful and they're sort of using it for evil because, you know, I mean the reward loop – people talk about, you know, people who play video games talk about the gameplay loop, the reward loop, you know, as being an interesting thing. Oh, this game did something really interesting with their gameplay loop, you know, that made me feel like this and that's you know how cool is that you know um and that's like a part of the design but then yeah it was with games like candy crush uh uh and you know the various kardashian games and things like that that i started to notice you know oh this is using sort of slot machine game design principles or design principles that are designed to addict people without giving them something of value. You know, the difference between a Nintendo game is that you pay forty, sixty dollars for it and then you just it just wants you to have a nice time. You've paid your money. Right. It doesn't ask for more of you unless, hey, maybe you buy an expansion for an extra fifteen bucks. But these are sort of you know, Candy Crush is sort of designed in this way where it's it's design you know, you can't get further in it until you pay a little bit more money and because right. you're so in the zone of the game it's now going to slowly start hoovering money from your wallet exactly the profit logic is really different and i had a, an interesting conversation with someone who made online games in a time when um bandwidth was you know at a premium where um, we just didn't have the technology we had today, and they couldn't sustain this experience for their customers if all the customers were playing at the same time. And it was a subscription model. So just like the Nintendo that you buy and then you use it, you pay your monthly fee to go on this gaming site. And then the, the engineers would sit around, apparently, having conversations. How can we get this guy to go read a book? How can we get this guy off? He's, we've already <laughs> gotten his money. Um, this, what we see today is totally different. And I have a word for it. I call it nano monetization because mm -hmm. your point of monetizing it and making profit is not when you take a subscription payment, uh, or you go to Best Buy and buy the Nintendo setup. It's every little second and they try to make it faster and more continuous that you're paying, 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 paying like, oh, you want to keep paying, pay, pay, pay. Tiny little bits, right. right? Like the multi-line slot machine, one cent. You think like that's nothing, right? That's like kids play one cent. These machines are the real money makers in this, you know, billion dollars industry. Right. In, you know, Nintendo now has uh, famously they started doing with the, this with a Wii where if you were playing for a long time, they would pop up a little screen saying, hey, get up and take a break. It That makes games even more fun. <laughs> you know, you've been playing for quite a while. <laughs> a slot machine is and they'll do that because you've already they've already gotten your money. A slot machine uh, is if it's around maximizing TOD time on device. It's going to it, it, everything. All those elements of the design are going to be designed to keep you there as long as possible. And that seems to be where I mean, tell me if you agree, that seems to be where it became it begins possible. It begins to be possible to say these are designed to be addictive and they're creating addiction through their design. Yes. And just to clarify as a final point what I mean by addiction by design, I don't think any of these designers are sitting around a boardroom, uh, you know, looking sinister, rubbing their hands together, saying, how can we make more addicts? What they're doing is sitting around the boardroom saying, 
how can we better monetize every little second of time to increase time on device? And by sort of going along with that logic of profit, a logic of continuous absorption, right, that that's how they're going to make their money, that's where the real problem comes in. So, you know, the effect of that is that they're creating, they're hitting upon a formula that creates addicts. So that so so addiction is tied to design, even if there's no explicit intention. The explicit intention is to make more money. And that's why I think some kind of regulation has to happen at the level uh, of, you know, you, you just simply can't operate with that profit logic because it's not good for people. Right. And, we, and but first we need to have a realization that these kinds of designs do cause addiction um, because we just don't you know, we don't have that cultural awareness. I mean, we know that, you know, uh, you know, we have a cultural awareness now that tobacco can be addictive. So we have regulations and the tobacco companies themselves start to have practices in place to, you know, uh, account for that. Um, you know, even uh, I know that even if you look at sort of macro what, you know, Pepsi has been doing, you can tell that the company is becoming aware that their products are addictive and you can tell that there's more of a general cultural awareness so we're starting to build those systems um in place but it seems that with you know again the idea of of game design or or gambling design as being something that can cause full-fledged addiction that we're not quite there culturally we you know we don't have our uh you know the, our society doesn't know that it's happening well enough to address it or do you feel that that's changing do you do you see I do think it's front? changing i actually think that uh you know so my my current research now um is on this this explosion of gadgets and devices that we use to uh, regulate our behavior to make ourselves more healthy and more fit. So just think of the Fitbit, right? Or the mm. app that reminds you when to drink water. So it's using mm -hmm. technology to regulate ourselves in a different way, not into the zone, but sort of back into a mindful world where you pay attention to your posture um, and all this kind of thing. And if you look at what's behind a lot of those devices, it's how do you protect yourself against distraction? How do you protect yourself against Netflix? How do you, you know, build into Netflix some other secondary app that will stop, you know, the autoplay of the next episode? So it will help, it will protect you against a binge. So we're starting, I think we're all starting to be aware of those rabbit holes in our lives where we get sucked in and pulled in and find, we've all had the experience of spending way more time and sometimes money than we intended to at these kind of games and on these websites. And I think that we do, we can sort of understand that as a kind of addiction. We, we, all, we all sort of get the zone, I think, and we get the zone as a product of technology. And we're trying to sort of arm ourselves against it with these other technologies. So I, I feel like there's at least an incipient awareness cult in the culture that this is going on. Yes, you can see in the ways that, you know, people, at least on the Internet, you know, people, there are now all these tools that you can use to uh, uh, stop yourself from, uh, you know, shut your uh, off your access to different websites or things right. like that, that. Lock yourself out of the yeah. refrigerator, so to speak. But it seems like, uh, I mean, in terms of regulation, do you see uh, the, you know, any any people in positions of power, lawmakers, et cetera, starting to have an awareness of this? Or, you know, is it a matter of like regulatory capture by the gambling industry? 
I think it's both regulatory capture by the gambling, gaming, you know, internet industry. And it's also just that the, the, the tools are not there. The language is not there to talk about this kind of interactive feedback-based product. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just really hard to make the translation. And so much of regulation is built around the idea of what's called the consumer sovereign or homo economicus. And this is an entity <laughs> where we all are in control of our purchases, what we want to purchase right. and what we want to do. And people even say that they try to make that argument about cigarette smokers that actually the, you know, the, the, the addict of cigarettes knows exactly what they want to spend their money on and they should be allowed to do it. So it's this idea of free choice that we're really wedded to in America. And it's like admitting at all that we are creatures of habit or that our preferences and desires could be shifted by the things we interact with is right. anathema to our mindset. And it's certainly anathema to our regulatory standards. And so all of that needs to shift. And you see little movements toward it. Um, some of which I'm involved in myself and even something like Ariana Huffington's Thrive website or uh, I don't know if you know Tristan Harris, but he's got a he's a former Google designer. And now he has a website called Time Well Spent where he's trying to sort of think about how we can we design our technologies away from this sort of pull into the zone uh, to make us more happy thriving people who aren't just wasting time and money on this stuff. Well, thank you so much for your uh, for your work on this and, and for spreading the word about it. And I hope folks who listen to uh, this episode also help build that awareness that this is, a, this is a problem we need to acknowledge. Yeah, and thank you. It's been fun talking. Well, thank you once again to Natasha Dauschul for coming on the show. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is the amazing Shara Morris. And if you like this show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, whatever it may be. But don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe because it really helps us out a lot with the old algorithms. Like we heard on the show, it's all about algorithms. But these algorithms, they don't get you addicted to slot machines. They just help make our podcast more popular and help spread the message to others. So help out those algorithms and help us defeat the bad algorithms. Uh, well, hey, you'll be doing your part no matter what. Again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is back every Tuesday night on True TV at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. And you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Or, hey, just look us up on YouTube. There's a lot of clips on there as well. Until then, we'll see you next time. Thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. Uh, MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.